Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. The message entitled, What About Predestination? Paul has indicated that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, and then proceeded to indicate the blessings. Now again, remember, verse 3 down to 14 is one complete sentence in the Greek. So we don't lose sight of that. In our last study, we um, noted that the first blessing presented is the doctrine of election, characterized by three things that run from verse 5 to 6. The proclamation of election in verse 4, the explanation about election in verse 5, and the exaltation for election in verse 6. We looked at the first point, the proclamation of election, which uh, was marked by three truths in verse 4. The one who did the choosing, the time of the choosing, and the purpose of the choosing. Now, we want to take the second point, the explanation about election, which is described in three ways. Let me read verse 5. Having predestinated, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. It's described in three ways, the explanation about election. First, the manner of our election is the first part. Then comes the purpose of our election in the second part. And then the means of our election is the third part. The manner, the purpose, and the means. And he explains it in this full fashion. The manner of our election comes first. Listen to the words, having predestined us. The Apostle Paul revealed the manner of our election by God the Father as predestined. The word predestined means to predetermine, to determine or mark out beforehand. The word is a participle in the error's active tense, the idea being that it's fixed and established in advance in eternity. And we saw this clearly last week. One described it as the placing of offense around those who accept his provision for salvation. The word appears in this form only six times in the New Testament. So keep that in mind. When people argue about predestination election, these words are very few times in the, in the, in the scriptures. And they're very specific. You find that in Acts 4.28, Romans 8.29 and 30. 1 Corinthians 2, 7, and here in Ephesians 1, 5, and verse 11 also. We'll take them individually as we go along later on. We'll see exactly the context. But that's the places that they're found, the only places. Now, election, as we have noted, does not deny the human responsibility to respond by God initiating through the gospel, nor does predestination deny the human responsibility. So when we're talking about election and predestination, that does not exclude human responsibility, but includes it in a way that we don't completely understand. Okay? Now, Calvinists who deny man's free will automatically reason that God predestines some to eternal damnation because they say he elected some for eternal Election. Wrong. You never find that in the scriptures. Not one verse. But election, predestination, and man's free will are all scriptural. But we cannot understand how they work because we don't have foreknowledge and omniscience. Omniscience, God knows everything. For knowledge, he knows it before it happens. Simple. His ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says. The text says, God the Father predestined the church, the corporate body, look at it closely, not the individual being saved. 
us, the corporate body, not the individual. In like manner, God chose Israel to represent him to the other nations. Deuteronomy 7, 6, 8, Isaiah 43, 1 through 10, and many other places. That God chose Israel does not mean or imply that he rejected all other nations or denied salvation to all other people. Remember Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, was a priest and he offered sacrifice to God. You ever think about that? The truth is just the opposite. God chose Israel to take the message of salvation to the rest of the world. Not particular individuals. Yet, the majority of the nation of Israel rejected Jesus. So God raised the nation from one man. But it always deals with the corporate nation. All these scriptures that we'll see always deal with the corporate body of Christ, the church, not individuals for salvation. That's very key. You've got to look at it real good. In like manner, God predestined from the foundation of the world that the New Testament church would exist as his witness to the world. Now, the Apostle Paul Reveal that the Bible never uses predestination in view of foreknowledge and election unto salvation, as we stated last time, but is always unto specific blessings that accompany salvation. So it's either for blessing or service, and that's why you have to look at the context. We saw... Last week in verse 4, that um, he chose us, elected us before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him. The term predestination and election are used interchangeably as marked out beforehand for a special purpose and blessing. The only reason ever given is according to the Greek word krata. According to what? Foreknowledge. In harmony with the foreknowledge of God. And First Peter 2 makes that very clear. So he elected us and predestined according to his foreknowledge. In harmony with. The foreknowledge of God is based on his omniscience. Not his decrees as we've seen as Calvinists teach. Calvinists teach that God, they, they see the decree of God as singular. All of them in a singular decree. And that God decreed all these decrees. Yet as we saw last week, the word decree only appears one time in the, in the Old Testament. And not one of them that even is implied is a decree for individual salvation. And they believe that God only knows and foreknows because he decreed. Are you kidding me? God knows because he's omniscient. Not because he decreed it. The source of everything is his omniscience. They've got it backwards. Just like they say that God has to regenerate you first, then faith comes, then your new birth comes. No, my Bible says faith comes first, then regeneration. Now, I know that different Calvinists believe different things. Not all believe the same thing. So I don't try to teach what individuals teach. I, I, I oppose the teaching of Calvinism as the five points. And you can do whatever you want with it. But you can't just pick and choose. It's impossible. Now, six times the word predestination appears. And five come from Paul. The first two are in Romans. Listen to Romans 8, 29, and 30. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined, same word, perizo, to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, perizo again, these he also called. 
whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. Calvinists love that verse. Both verses, if you look, by implication, teach that foreknowledge concerns those who God knows will believe the gospel and be saved, not that he predestined them to believe the gospel. Simple. There's a big difference. This should not bother anyone. It simply means that God knows from the beginning who will ultimately be saved and thereby the blessings of their inheritance has been planned and bestowed to those saved. In fact, in Ephesians 2, 7, he says that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. There it is again, us. It's always corporate as the church. Now, neither of these passages in Romans, verse 29 and 30 of chapter 8, teach that God predestined or elected some for salvation unconditionally, as Calvinists teach. But they're predestined to Christ's likeness, as do the remaining four passages that we'll see containing the word predestination. If you believe you're predestined, there better be some confirmation to the image of Christ. In Christ's likeness. That's who you were predestined to. For knowledge, again, is the reason and basis for predestination. But again, it is to be conformed to Christ's likeness. Nothing is said of the select few, nor the majority to be damned. Do you see anything in that verse about that? And yet they will insert it in, read it in. The third appearance of the word is in 1 Corinthians 2, 7. Paul says, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained, the same word, perizo, same word, before the ages for our glory, 1 Corinthians 2, 7. Now the context is the wisdom of the gospel for the believer already saved, determined by God beforehand, nothing is stated about the elect few. But it's read in. The fourth appearance is our text right here. Having predestined perizo, us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. And we'll see this as we go through it. Now, the benefit and blessing is to the adoption of sons. There's a blessing and benefit. The fifth appearance of Paul says, and you find it in verse 11 of this first chapter, in him also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined. Perusal, same word. According to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. The inheritance is the blessing of predestination. As you look at the context. The sixth and last time that we see it is in the gospel of Luke. Um, well, not the gospel, but the book of Luke, uh, book of Acts. Um, Acts 4.28 He says, For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determine, perizo, same word, translated determine, before to be done. The context is the fulfillment of the plan of redemption by Jesus Christ. These are the only six passages that mention predestination and not one of them 
teaches that God preordained from ages past who should be saved to eternal life and who should be damned to eternal life as taught by Calvinists. Not one of them. It's read in. It's assumed. It's added. Predestination and man's free will has been um, described as two oars that are needed to go straight in a rowboat. If you have one, you just go in a circle. <laughs> it keeps you lined up. They're not in contradiction. They complement one another. The human problem of predestination and free will is no problem to God, who is eternal. We talked about the eternity of God last time. God being eternal is perpetual. He has no beginning or end. He always has been. How do you even grasp that? One of the questions that sometimes non-believers say, well, well who created God? Well, nobody's God. Oh, yeah, right. I, I don't blame them. You know, if, you're, if you're not a Christian, of course you can't believe that. God being eternal has nothing to do with growth, development, and maturity as we understand it. He's immutable in every attribute. Immutable means he can't increase, he can't decrease. Now, you go down to the Pacific Ocean and you take your Starbucks coffee cup and you take out a cup full of water from the Pacific Ocean. You have just diminished it. You take the grace of God and all the sinners who have called upon the grace of God to be forgiven, it has not been affected one iota. It remains the same. And every one of his attributes, they don't increase, they don't decrease. They just are. <laughs> He's called the everlasting God, the eternal God in Genesis 21, 33, Deuteronomy 33, 27, and many other passages. I am that I am, the becoming one, having no beginning or end. Isaiah calls him the eternal father. Exodus 3.14, Isaiah 9.6. He is from everlasting to everlasting, which means from the vanishing point to the vanishing point. Time out of mind. Psalm 90, verse 2. I like that. Daniel tells us that his kingdom and dominion are eternal. In Daniel 4.3 and 34. Now, God being infinite which is another one of his attributes, has no limitations or hindrances being self-determinate and self-existing. He is eminent, which means he is involved in the world and its process constantly. But he doesn't force the hand of man. And no man ever is a problem for him to be involved. Now, we don't understand that to the fullest. He's transcendent, which means that he is beyond our temporal world or our abilities to comprehend and understand him intellectually to a full end. For he is outside and beyond the dimensions of time, space, and matter, as we stated last time, we only know past, present, and future. And we're running down this chronological linear time. He lives outside of this time domain. He created this time domain out of eternity. It will go back into eternity as we saw last time. Genesis 1.1 says it clearly. In the beginning, God created Bara. The heavens and the earth. Out of nothing. He spoke them into being. Now, if you can handle verse 1, you have no problem with predestination election or anything else. He created out of nothing. What a great place to put that verse. Right at the beginning. God told Abraham, Is there anything too hard for the Lord in reference to Isaac's birth in Genesis 18, 14? No! 
But Sarah's old. I mean, her womb is dead. So? For God, that's nothing. God divided the Red Sea. Made the sun to stand still. Fed Elijah through ravens. Protected Daniel in the lion's den. And we can go on and on and on. He's limitless. He's unhindered. God is not biting his nails. And he's sitting down. (laughs) Those predestined and who respond to the gospel will live eternally with Jesus then. Angels and souls are said to be everlasting and will exist forever in that they will live on in eternity with God or separated from God. But not that they are eternal in and of themselves. For both angels and man had a beginning, though they will have no end. So we're going to live eternally But not because we are eternal. Because we had a beginning. Angels had a beginning. The only one that's eternal is God. No one else. People will spend eternity either in the presence of God or in the lake of fire. But they're not eternal by virtue that they had a beginning from the Creator. In Gehenna... In Matthew twenty five forty one, this was made for Satan and his angels, not for any man. Listen to Jesus in John three fourteen and fifteen. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Whoever believes, he doesn't say whoever is unconditionally elected. <laughs> whoever believes. Whosoever, no one's excluded. God's not willing that any should perish, but God knows that not all want to go to heaven. And many will perish. Lord, are there many to be saved? Few there be that find it. Agonized to enter in. It's not the fault of God. It's the fault of man. If you confess with your mouth that the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10, 9. Straightforward. Real simple. The manner of our election was that God predestined us. I have no problem with that. According to the scripture's definition of it, not according to Calvinism. Okay? Notice secondly now. Secondly comes the purpose of our election. The Apostle Paul declared that the purpose of our election was to be reconciled to God. Listen to the words. To adoption as sons. The initial family God created, as you know, was in state of innocence back in Genesis 1.27. They were created after the image and likeness of God. Um, both male and female. Adam was created first from the earth, Eve, out of Adam's side. And both had a free will without influence of any sin nature. So for the sake of labeling, we'll say in the state of innocence prior to the fall. And then they were placed in the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve had everything they needed. And they walked in uninhibited an uninterrupted fellowship with God in the Garden of Eden. We can't even imagine anything like that. We have no clue. Adam and Eve had only one restriction. To not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, or they would surely die, Genesis 2.17 says. God made this very clear. It was a warning of love. They had a free will. Adam and Eve had the capacity to sin, but had not sinned yet. 
They're in a state of innocence, but they have the capacity to sin if they will to disobey. But in a way that you and I can never understand because we have a capacity to sin, but we have sin nature, and our sin nature pulls us and influences to sin. Okay? The best way I could illustrate it is before Adam, you know how you get a magnet and, and, and you piece of metal and you get it too close to the magnet, you start seeing the pull? That's you and me right now in a fallen state for sin. Adam and Eve, there was no pull. Because they hadn't had sin nature. They hadn't sinned. But they had the potential to make the decision. But once they made that decision, woo, they, boom, they just dropped, they just drag you like a dog once that sin nature comes in. The initial family God created was brought to a state of sinfulness then. Adam and Eve both chased, or they chose, not chased, they chose to disobey God, and they ate of the tree of good and evil in Genesis 3. Satan, through the serpent, as you know, approached Eve and challenged the authority of God. Has God said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden in Genesis 3.1? Now, Eve's mistake was to talk to Satan. Satan then challenged the character and integrity of God. You will not surely die, Genesis 3.4. Finally, Satan challenged the goodness of God. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil, Genesis 3.5. Every, every step is drawing her closer and closer to be led captive by Satan, to be drawn away from obedience, to be drawn towards disobedience. The woman saw the tree that was good for food and it was pleasant to the eye and the tree desired to make one wise and she took of the fruit and ate and she also gave to her husband with her. And he ate also, Genesis 3, 6. Pleasant to the eye, the eye gate. Desirable to make one wise intellectually, pride. She took of the fruit and ate, experiencing it. Immediately it was done. I've often wondered, how did Eve feel? being fallen and her husband standing next to her and he hasn't fallen yet. And there was such a great difference between them at that point. Adam is still good. She's fallen. Adam is still in fellowship with God. She isn't. Wow. Ever think about that? But then she gave to him. The eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Genesis 3-7. Guilt, shame. Hiding. That's what happens with sin. Conscience becomes alive. It accuses us. Now, we usually think of a little fig leaf that our trees bear. This is the garden. In the geological column, they find ferns that are 35 feet tall. The uh, atmosphere, the, 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 the humidity, the atmosphere is so different. Um, probably this fig leaf, you could make a whole coat out of it. I don't think it was a little fig leaf. <laughs> so I don't think they had any problem covering themselves, okay? Um, but here they experienced the reality of what God said. Just as every one of us as we are growing up, when we cross those lines and we thought we knew better, we thought we could handle it, and then when we cross that line, it just kicked in like plugging into electricity. Oh, the reality of it. And there was no turning back. 
the paradise that God had for them is ruined because of the choice. Eve was deceived and Adam transgressed, so the fall was attributed to Adam being the head of the race. Genesis 3, 13 and 17 and Romans 5, 12 tells us. And Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, 14, that's why a woman should not usurp authority over a man as a pastor teacher in the church because Adam was created first and Eve was deceived, not Adam. Because a woman has a greater propensity for deception because she gets wrapped up emotionally more and she makes decisions more by feelings and emotions than a man. Not that men are not deceived or cannot be deceived. More is the key. More often. Simple. Okay? The consequences were that there are now two families in the world. The two family lines are those of Cain and those of Abel, the saved and the unsaved. God gave the promise of redemption through the Son, the virgin birth of Messiah in Genesis 3.15. He gave the means by which to atone in Genesis 3.21. He killed an animal, clothed him. The blood was the atonement. Leviticus 17.11, the life of the flesh is in the blood. I've given it for an atonement upon the altar and the horns of the altar for you. And so God expelled Adam and Eve from the garden lest they eat of the tree of life in a fallen state and live forever fallen, unable to be redeemed, Genesis 3, 22 through 24. The love of God, the compassion of God, the mercy of God, the wisdom of God boots them out and puts a cherub there to guard the tree of life. From Adam and Eve's perspective, it, I'm sure at the, at the moment it, 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 it was interpreted as cruel, unloving, uncompassionate that the one who created us booted us out. But it was protection for the whole human race. At times your children and mine, when I was raising mine, they thought that I was probably the worst dad in the world for some of the restrictions or some of the actions I took. But I was looking way down the road, not at the immediate thing that they were being pulled by. The two families are identified in 1 John 3.10. In this, the children of God are the children of, and the children of the devil are manifested. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. So you have the children of God and the children of the devil. John is very straightforward. Both families. Cain, Abel. Two lines. Now the spiritual blessing Paul is stating is being predestined to adoption of sons, being reconciled back to God. Now that we have the history of how we got out away from being legitimate sons of God. Paul is saying how we can get back reconciled to God. The phrase adoption of sons means the placing of a son into the position of a son to whom it does not naturally belong. The word Paul uses means that a Roman could take anyone, even a slave, and make him his adopted son and he would be recognized as a natural born son after you drew up the document under Roman law. He could be appointed heir over natural sons, even the firstborn. And it was legal and binding as a transaction under Roman law. This is the word that Paul is using. This is the word that is applied to us as former sinners that were sinners by nature and now saints with a divine nature. We were children of the devil. Now we're children of God. The phrase adoption of sons is found four times in the New Testament, only four times. Romans 8.15, 8.23, 
9.4 and Galatians 4.5. In Romans 8.15, it says, And you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Bringing us into a personal loving relationship, calling God Abba, Daddy. No Jew would ever consider calling God Father, let alone Daddy, Abba. <laughs> Romans eight twenty three, the second one, says, Not only that, but we also who have the first fruit of the Spirit... Even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. The context is giving us the expectation of hope of a transforming, of transforming our bodies. We're looking for the transformation when the Lord comes back for us. That's the context. The adoption and the redemption of our body. The third one is Romans 9.4. He says, who are Israelites, talking about Israel, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. He's referring to the remnant of Israel during the tribulation and great tribulation. Context, context, context is very key to studying the scriptures, which many people divorce the scriptures from. So they make the text say nonsense. The fourth one is Galatians 4, 5. It says to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. Those who believe in Jesus and receive him through repentance, enabling them to cry out, Abba, again. The Aramaic word indicating affection and tenderness. Daddy. You also find that in Mark 14, 3, that expression. Now, the Apostle Paul declared that the purpose was, notice, accomplished by Jesus. He's the key. We've seen this already in the introduction. We're going to hear it over and over and over again. By Jesus Christ to himself. The phrase Jesus Christ indicates the means by which the adoption, the adopted position was made possible. The preposition by indicates the ground and reason for our sonship. We are adopted sons and daughters through Christ. We are adopted sons and daughters by the transaction of Jesus through his death and resurrection. We are adopted sons and daughters through the mediator role of Jesus. 1 Timothy 2, 5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. The go-between. The Old Testament, the go-between was the priest. So when he faced the people, he represented God to the people. When he went into the tabernacle, he represented the people to God. He was the go-between. The high priest was a type of Christ to come. <laughs> the high priest. The name Jesus, as we've noted before... As we look at verse 1, is the Greek name means Yahweh is salvation. Jesus is the Greek translation of the Hebrew name Joshua. Joshua in the Hebrew is the contraction of the Hebrew Yahweh Shua, Yahweh is salvation. And then you have the title Christ. It means anointed in the Greek. The context focuses on the anointed of God, the Messiah. The word is the translation of that Hebrew word, Mashiach. Those who believe the gospel that Jesus died and rose from the dead and atoned for their sins. That's what's implied. 
The saints believing in Christ are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, in Christ, and chosen in Him. Verse 1, 3, and 4. <laughs> it's in, through, of, to, with, Jesus Christ, anointed Messiah. <laughs> you can't get away from Him. The sonship of the believer, notice this is in relationship to the Father. It says, to Him. The personal pronoun refers to the Father, not the Son. And we've seen this distinction and we'll see it more. The pronoun capitalized indicates a proper name referring to God. The first person of the Trinity, the Father. We have pointed out that all three persons of the Trinity are involved in the process of salvation. The Father is identified, verse 3 to 6, in salvation. The Son, 7 to 12. The Holy Spirit, 13 and 14. All three of them are there. Verse 3 to 14 is all one sentence. Together. Each one of those sections ends with the understanding that salvation is to the praise and glory of God alone. Verse 6, verse 12, verse 14. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. <laughs> now the Father being the first person of the Trinity, as noted in verse 3, the Father is the source or origin, the Son is the channel, and the Holy Spirit is the agent. Three persons, yet one God, one Lord, one Spirit, one Savior, yet Father and Son co-equal by the titles of God and Lord, yet the priority of the Father is evident by the fact that He is always mentioned first. Always, without exception. It's much like when you adopt a child. When you adopt a child is by choice. You visit, you talk, at least from the human perspective. You look at the children that are available, candidates for adoption. And you make your decision and you take them home. And you give them your name. And you give them every benefit that you can to bless them. You go to the hospital, have a baby. You have the baby. You have no choice. You have to take it home. <laughs> Adoption, you have a choice. <laughs> Ever think about that? <laughs> Listen to some of the effects and evidence of being a son and a daughter of God. John 1.12 says, But as many as received them, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. Simple, straightforward. Romans 8.14, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they're the sons of God. Now, compare yourself to these things. Romans 8.15, I'm sorry, 8.14. For as many as are led by the Spirit... Uh, of God, these are the sons of God. And then 8.15, uh, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage, again the fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Romans 8.16 and 17, The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, and heirs of God, and join heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. 2 Corinthians 6.18, We will be, I will be a father to you, and you should be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. The book of Hebrews gives us the flip side of fatherhood, which is not 
one that we like, but it's the most loving, the most compassionate, and the most committed of loves. Listen carefully. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord Yahweh, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord Yahweh loves, he chastens and scourges every son who he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom the father does not chasten? But if you are without chasing, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not a son. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? Hebrews twelve five through 9. 1 John 3, 1 says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. The purpose for our election was for the adoption of sons. Thirdly, He gives us the means of our election at the end there. Listen to the words, according to the good pleasure of his will. The Apostle Paul revealed the Father chose us sovereignly. The sovereignty of God is described according to the good pleasure of his will, notice. There was no compulsive obligation, but according to his good pleasure. God's good pleasure expresses the kindly intent, delight, and satisfying desire of God. His sovereignty is in conformity to his nature. God is love. God would much rather forgive than judge, Isaiah says. It's a strange way for God to deal with man in judgment, he says. This phrase appears nine times in the New Testament. Matthew eleven twenty six, Luke two fourteen ten twenty one, Romans ten one, Ephesians here, chapter one five and nine, and then Philippians one fifteen two fifteen, and the last one is Second Thessalonians one eleven. So two times here in Ephesians verse five and verse nine. Now the origin of God's good pleasure, notice is His will. The word will means what one wishes or determines to be done. Simple. You say, well, you know, I don't care what you think. I'm going to do what I want. You're you're saying I'm going to do what I I will to do. Same thing. The word expresses the purpose, choice, and inclination of God's self-determination. Now, you and I are self-determinant beings. We have the power of choice, volition. The only thing is that we're not God, so we make bad choices. When God makes a choice, he can only make a good choice and the best choice. <laughs> so he wins hands down. Ephesians 1, 11 and 12 said, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. The sovereignty of God means he can do as he wills, when he wills, to who he wills, as often as he wills, yet he will never violate any of his attributes or the free will of man. How is that possible? It just is. Because he's perfect and he's holy. And he's just and he's good. The sovereignty of God is manifested in perfect wisdom. Resulting from all the attributes of God that are perfect. God's sovereignty makes all the right decisions in perfect justice. Having the benefit of um, 
perfection. And he always has man in mind when he makes those decisions. Because God is love. He's the creator. Sovereignty, like the foreknowledge of God, never violates the free will of man. This is a mistake always to exclude that or to cancel it out. We've already seen that he gave Adam and Eve a free will to choose right and wrong, and they were accountable to their choice. They were kicked out of the garden. A little animal had to die. Blood had to be spilled. A promise of a mediator and a Messiah had to be given. The sovereignty of God is um, demonstrated as to Esau and Jacob in Romans 8, 16 to 11. As it refers to the nations of Edom and Israel, not individual election as Calvinists teach there. Esau and Jacob there, they're quoting Malachi and Malachi is quoting Genesis. The nation, not individual salvation. Once again, a very dishonest interpretation. Completely out of context. Okay? The sovereignty of God regarding Pharaoh is another example in Romans 8, 17 through 18. uh, Who hardened his own heart when God then got to the point where he hardened his heart, honoring his choice of hardening, and he strengthened his will. But it was after Pharaoh kept hardening his heart. You say, well, that's not fair. Well, wait a minute. If, if you want God to respect your choice, and then he respects your choice, now you're getting mad at God? You can't have it both ways. The sovereignty of God is the major theme dealing with Israel and the Gentiles in Romans 9. Putting Israel aside, bringing the wild olive branch in. But he says, now be careful, don't boast. As I cut you off, as I cut them off, I'm going to bring them in again at the end. <laughs> the branch don't bear the root, the root bears the branch. So don't get cocky. And Paul rebukes the church. <laughs> the sovereignty of God never excludes the responsibility of man to respond to God in choice. Never. So, seeing that God is all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing, possessing foreknowledge, the epitome of perfect wisdom, that he's eternal, infinite, immutable. Should his sovereignty worry us in regards to whether it will be fair and just? Of course not. That's silly. Listen to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4, 35, after he regained his sanity as God humbled him. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? Now, Nebuchadnezzar did, did, Reject the will of God. God gave him the empires of the world was going to happen. He tried to contradict God. Rather than believing he was just a head of gold, he made a whole image of gold. So God said, okay. We're going to see about that. But he did grieve God. He did reject God. He did exercise his will against God. And then God humbled him. And he made the right choice. We must distinguish between the various terms used and not make them synonymous when they are not. Everything we've been looking at is all according to the foreknowledge of God. With what he knows beforehand. God certainly knows in harmony with his foreknowledge who is going to accept him and who is going to reject him. But it isn't because he predetermined them to be saved by unconditional election or predetermined them to be damned, but because they exercise their free will to be saved 
or to be damned by rejecting the gospel. God knowing this, he then will and has predestined the saved to be conformed unto Christ and blessing and service. This does not violate God's initiation through the gospel or man's free will to choose. But to equate foreknowledge or the word foreknow, as John Calvin or Calvinists do with the meaning of foreordination, predetermination, or election, rather than knowledge beforehand, is a great error. They misdefine it. Peter distinguishes between the determinate counsel or purpose of God from the foreknowledge of God. Listen. Him being determinate, him being Jesus, being delivered by the determinate purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death. Peter distinguishes between the determinate counsel or purpose and the foreknowledge of God. You can't make them the same. If the Jew carried out the decree of God, as is stated here, then they were really obeying God. But they are charged by being personally responsible, acting on their own. Do you realize that? If God predestined them to do this, how can God charge them of doing that as a sin? God should really reward them because they're obeying what he decreed. (laughs) Simple. Paul makes the same distinction in Romans 8.29. We read it. For whom he didn't foreknow, he also did predestine. Foreknowledge. The word also denotes the differentiation, making it abundantly clear that God's foreknowledge is not the same as predestination. Foreknowledge is the reason for predestination. And if God predestined the elect out of his good pleasure of his will, and he damned also the greater part of humanity as Calvinism teaches, Out of his good pleasure, which they say. What is the sense of mentioning foreknowledge? There is no need to know anything. It is a mere personal decision of God, regardless of the obvious unjustness and violence to his nature and attributes. If you can't be saved because he's predestined to be damned, then it's kind of silly to offer the salvation. And that's mockery, isn't it? So what's the sense of even discussing foreknowledge? (laughs) Calvinism is like a mule. It cannot reproduce. It's sterile. The means of our election was according to the good pleasure of his will. I have no problem with none of this. (laughs) If I understand it the way the Bible teaches it, not the way Calvinism teaches it. Election, predestination, they're biblical. But never exclude man's responsibility of free will. Which they cannot allow in any way at all. So, this is the explanation about election described In these three ways. The manner of our election was that God predestined us. The purpose for our election was for the adoption of sons. And the means of our election was according to the good pleasure of his will. That that, that should just delight you. (laughs) That God chose you. And that you responded to the gospel. And that you are a son and a daughter of God tonight by his grace. Enjoy your inheritance. We're going to get into it as we move on. Lord, thank you for your love and goodness. Thank you for tonight and for your grace, Lord. 
We just pray you continue to deal with our hearts. And Father, you would use us to reach those who do not know you as your word goes forth. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. You might be over the internet. If you believe that Jesus is God who became man, died for your sins and rose from the dead, then the Bible says you can be saved. And he will forgive you of your sins and give to you eternal life. This is your decision, your choice, your confession. It's called repentance. This is your prayer to him if you want to be born again. And he will transform your life right where you sit right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. And fill me with your spirit. I accept you. As my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.